So this tripling of renewables target and doubling of energy efficiency target, if I was in the business of energy efficiency services or a solar power company, I'd be licking my lips. <laughs> this is your investment case. This is your market growth case. I'm Tatiana Antonella Beya, founder of Goombook, and you're listening to Forward Talks, Conversations That Matter. This is the last episode of our special series for COP28, in partnership with MasterCard and with the support of the Dubai Government Media Office. I'm joined today by Tanzi Dalam, Managing Director at Earth Matters, to talk about the outcomes of COP28, the UAE consensus, from delivery to action. Tanzid has an extensive experience in consulting with private sector and government on climate action. He also took a special role last year as an advisor at the private office of Her Excellency Razan Al-Mubarak, the UN high-level climate champion for COP28. Tanzid is also our first returning guest. When he was on the show four years ago, we were just about to enter full lockdown in 2020, and we spoke about our impact on nature and what we could learn from the pandemic. There's a lot has happened on climate. You know, it's sometimes easy to just get stuck in the weeds and think, here's another media release and there's so many people doing this and that. Um, I've been working in on the topic of climate now for almost 20 years. Um, And it's obviously become much more of a mainstream issue, which is exactly what I personally have been advocating for and for a long, long time, that it has to be at the top levels of government decision making and private sector decision making for a change to actually happen in the, the, the pace we need it. Um, you know, I'm fortunate enough in the last year or year and a half that, um, You know, my company, Earth Matters, was hired by Her Excellency Razan al-Mubarak's private office to support her in her strategy and planning in the role of the high-level climate champion. Um, it was certainly like a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity and very privileged to have had that. Um, it was great to be able to support in through our technical expertise and know-how in the topic. Um, in the lead-up to COP, a lot was happening as well, so we... We've been following the COP. We were present at the COP for the full two weeks. Um, biggest ever COP. You know, the UAE doesn't do things in half measures. It has to be the biggest and the best, as you know. <laughs> and, Always. Uh, yeah, exactly. The site was beautiful, the expo site. It kind of brought back happy memories of the expo when it happened as well, having, having gone there as well. But obviously it had the COP flavor as well, which was very unique and different. Indeed, yes. When COP28 was uh, announced and, and, and that the fact that it would be in the UAE, I don't know what about you, but for me, I had that feeling of, you know, knowing that um, we would definitely as a country produce a memorable event. And in the media, there's been a lot of criticism uh, for many different reasons, of course. But I, I, I feel that we all are very proud now that actually COP28 happened here and it was delivered as an event itself in a very successful way. And also the outcomes were really powerful and impactful. Um, so for us to, you know, have been, we've all been working here for, for years, trying to advocate for um, more sustainable actions and, 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 and climate actions as well. Uh, but it feels sometimes we are a bit alone. And 
at COP meeting with incredible organizations and change makers and feeling that what we're doing is actually a joint effort that uh, and, and being able to create partnerships and collaborations with uh, with others really made me personally feel like okay we're on the right path and and an event like this can really enable um incredible action and and uh, be very powerful definitely can and it i think it did and i have to say i was really pleasantly surprised with the outcome of cop you know i've been following cops for a long time um they are an immensely political process it is essentially a a political process that's meant to lead to a lead to a negotiated outcome. Some people get very frustrated about why are countries arguing over whether there's the word should be and not but. It goes into that level of detail and it matters to countries why the and should be there instead of the but. <laughs> I'm yeah. just using this as a you know a ridiculous example. But um ultimately it was the most important COP since the Paris Agreement. And because it was in the Paris Agreement, we're meant to take stock every five years, take stock of where we are with our actions that countries committed to following the Paris Agreement and whether what the gaps are and to make a plan to fill those gaps to keep one and a half degrees within reach. So the global stock take was meant to give, um, take stock of that, which we all knew we weren't on track for globally. We were on track for about three degrees of warming. And from that perspective, actually, at least from a mitigation of climate change, reducing our emissions, it was probably the first COP that made it recognize the systemic challenges that were at play here. One is the need to transition away from fossil fuels as our main source of energy. Um, it's weird it took 30 years of COPs to get to that stage, but because the science has been clear for more than 30 years that fossil fuels are a driver of climate change, but that shows politics is behind the science. It takes time for politics to catch up to what the science says. It also recognized the importance of agriculture and food systems as a major contributor to climate change. The need to reduce emissions from how we produce food to how we use food, the food waste that we have in the system, um, as well as the crucial role of nature in climate change and needing to address deforestation as a key driver of our emissions. So it's the first time it ever got put together in a really tangible way like that. And then on top of that, the goals to triple renewables, to double energy efficiency by 2030, that's time bound. It shows really clearly what countries need to actually kind of sends the signals Actually, now, if you need to update your nationally determined contribution, which all countries now need to do by early 2025, you need to pick out the elements of what does an energy transition look like for you away from fossil fuels? How do you triple renewables? What do you need to do that? How do you double your energy efficiency? How do you change your agricultural and food production system? It's not an easy task. How do you reduce deforestation and make sure nature is a key part of your climate action? That requires a massive change in ambition for all the nationally determined contributions. So it's good that the COP sent that signal. And I didn't expect it would have done that, actually, but it did. Yeah, I think yeah. nobody was expecting all these outcomes altogether. And if you think that just the first day uh, they were able to start, uh, you know, uh, pledging real funding for the loss and damage fund. Yeah. That was incredible. I think by the end of COP, we achieved maybe a bit over... $800 million, if I'm not mistaken, for the loss and found. Still quite far from what's needed. But again, 
when when you talk about all the things that have been you know um, agreed or or highlighted, the big question is into who's going to be able to do that and who's going to fund this? Because of course, some countries might be able to do this internally, um, but the another big aspect of this COP was adaptation as well. Um, and again, adaptation is depends on, on, on funding, major funding. So I know that there's been a lot of different initiatives that are related to, to funding different um, um, activities or actions or implementations or funds. Could you tell us more about that aspect? Sure, sure. So one, one thing just to take a step back on this, you know, I mentioned the COP's a political process. So there's obviously the negotiated outcomes that happen in the blue zone, which not everyone could access. But there was also the climate action agenda driven by what the non-state actors or businesses, everyone who's not a government is involved in that, it includes local government, mayors, business. That had a massive area of action and activity at this COP beyond I've seen what I've seen before. And that's the role of like the high level climate champions. So it's easy to sometimes to see every day that there were announcements around finance. Some of it was through the official, the negotiated process, the party to party process, which is what the loss and damage funding arrangements that was announced on day one of the COP came through. But then there was also announcements that as part of the non-negotiated action agenda outcomes, which related to funding as well as action on adaptation on, on a whole host of areas around business, oil and gas partnerships and so on to reduce methane emissions. All of that happened outside of the official negotiated COP. So we need to look at COP as this beast that brings all of these things together and it can be easy to get lost in that. Now, when it comes to finance and the, through the negotiated track, the loss and damage funding was probably the key thing that really gathered the most amount of momentum. It's still nowhere near what's required, but it's the beginning. How that fund gets mobilized through the World Bank, who will host it kind of in the intermediate term, um, is crucial. That money has to go to the most vulnerable countries who are on the front line of the impacts of climate change. The criteria needs to be really clear. It should be dispersible quickly and it should be different to foreign aid and disaster relief funding that's already there. It shouldn't be cannibalizing existing. It should be new additional money. So there's a lot of details like that that very clever people out there will be tracking and monitoring and reporting on. But then there were other quite notable things announced. I think the UAE announced through this non- negotiator track its own fund called Altera, $30 billion. Um, the details of it are still to be ironed out. They have a website. I know Dr. Sultan is chairing the board, um, which is good to see some continuity from his role as COP president into this fund. Um, who gets the money? Under what conditions? Whether How much of it will go towards clean energy? How much of it will go towards adaptation? That's all still to be determined. It's at the moment an announcement of a 30 billion. How quickly it's mobilized, all of that still needs to get worked out. But the, the good thing is it's being hosted in the UAE. And, you know, as we know, UAE has a track record for delivering some a lot of these things that are kind of global in nature. You know, look at IRENA, for example. It hosted IRENA and IRENA is doing really well. It's an international kind of energy, you know, renewable energy agency. So I, I think they'll manage to do it. I think the gap in the negotiated outcome on finance was that we, we're nowhere near what's called the new collective quantified goal on finance being agreed how how much money will be needed to close that gap to one and a half degrees and make sure adaptation has the right amount of finance in the final decision of the cop it states i'll read it out 
it's um, 5.8 to 5.9 trillion dollars is needed pre-2030 for developing country parties to implement their nationally determined contributions. But nowhere is it mentioned who will pledge that money, where will that money come from? Adaptation finance is estimated at 215 to 387 billion dollars annually up until 2030. We haven't seen that level of pledge. $4.3 trillion per year is needed to be invested in clean energy up to 2030, increasing to $5 trillion up until 2050 to reach net zero. That's a massive gap. We're talking about trillions, not billions or millions, which is some of the pledges that have come up. So the gap is still there. Um, now, my personal take on this is, if we can find money to fight pandemics and wars, you know, in, to the tune of trillions, which, you know, if you think about the vaccine rollout during the pandemic, the global rollout, that was in a world in crisis mode, looking at how do we actually address this acute challenge to human health and public health and prevent the death of millions. We could find that money. We could mobilize private actors that was in the case of pharmaceutical companies to actually produce vaccines and scale up technology, which was relatively experimental at that stage to actually make it commercial and actually roll it out and reach people. Um, there were arguments to be had around the time, but it actually happened. There was a mass vaccine rollout. So why can't we do this for climate action? For me, it's a case of prioritizing it as a crisis, as acute as pandemics. Uh, as the last pandemic that we faced, then we know it can be done. So um, I feel it's like not happening. the pandemic yeah. was something very tangible, right? I mean, you had people dying in the streets, in their homes overnight. And and unfortunately, if, if we need to reach that point within climate change, it would be too late. If we reach the point where people are, are dying because of climate change, uh, I think that's that's the point where we we are not able to come back. Yeah. What what you said is very interesting, and and you said a very important word, which is commercial. And I think another reason why we see differences in millions being pledged into, for example, the loss and damage fund, or billions being pledged into a fund, it's because the first one is about giving money that is not actually invested in anything. They don't see a return in it. In a fund, somehow, we're investing in technologies and there is a, a return. And I believe, and, and maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, but if we are able to show the private sector the return of investment in climate technologies, maybe that's the solution. We don't have to reach the extreme crisis where, where, where there's a point of no return, but we need to be able now to show the, the return of investment when if we're asking for those trillions to be given, but rather than given, I think the word needs to continue being invested. There's a, there's a few things. I think firstly, people are already dying from climate change. So if you look at the flooding in Libya, for example, in 2023, um, like over 10,000 people died from that. Um, so people are dying from climate change, heat stress and so on. So it's happening. It's acute. It may not always be front and center. And, Unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. But it's happening. Sadly, it is happening. Um, obviously, we need money when it comes to loss and damage, the money you mentioned, that's almost like relief from, you know, if people are, are no longer able to live in their own countries, like in the small island states and having to migrate to live and relocate in Australia, for example, or other countries, then 
that's loss and damage. They're losing their livelihoods. They're losing their culture. They can't farm on their historical land anymore. That's how do you compensate someone for that? I mean, it's nothing to do with them. So there has to be some kind of public funding there. Um, when it comes to commercial investment through funds and making the case for investment in climate technology, a lot of it's already commercial. Look at the rise in renewables, wind, solar. It's the cheapest form of electricity generation now in the world. But how long did it take to reach this point? Remember just 10 years ago what it meant to talk about uh, investing in renewables? Yeah. It, 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 it was really complicated. Uh, yeah. Now only because it's cheaper, we're looking at it. Yeah, but... because it got that investment at the beginning. Yes to get those returns and you know and you could argue the UAE was at the hub of that where it got these it drove down the prices through you know economies of scale and building these massive solar parks that it's built now and will continue to build so this tripling of renewables target and doubling of energy efficiency target if i was in a business of energy efficiency services or a solar power company i'd be licking my lips at, <laughs> this is your investment case this is your market growth case to go to investors and say i need to scale this up so i can help countries meet these goals and you know look at the cost of renewables so that scaling up of renewables is crucial and then you know obviously there's other technologies that are also on that kind of trajectory of the cost curve benefits you know like electric cars and the growth of electric vehicles you look at kind of um hydrogen as yeah well. Hydrogen, I'd argue, is further behind at, at the moment in terms of being commercial. It's kind of earlier on in adoption and, and proving that it works at scale than EVs at this stage. If you look at like Chinese companies like BYD, who have now overtaken Tesla in terms of their sales, and they, they started off as a battery manufacturing company. So the cost of batteries is a crucial factor when it comes to the cost of electric cars and adoption of those cars. Now, there are certain things which are lagging behind, like you mentioned hydrogen, for example. There's also like decarbonization of cement industries, aluminium. Those are heavy, hard to abate sectors, as they call it in the techie speak of climate world. Um, the other area, you know, this requires that kind of initial innovation, scaling up investment to show that it can work at larger scales than outside of a lab. So whether it's to capture emissions from a cement plant and store it underground, um, or um, or for example, using large-scale solar thermal power to move an aluminium smelting plant away from gas power generation. Can that be trialed? So some of that requires that kind of more risky money to be invested. Um, and you know, you, you need to speak to kind of finance techie people at the COP. Everyone was talking about de-risking, de-risking. Private sector wants de-risked investments. What does that mean? It means that the risk of failure, they don't want to pick up the bill for that. But that's where that money comes from the public sector because the government is more willing or should be more willing to de-risk it for them. And it happens. It happens in many, many types of projects that, that require that. So that requires the parties to come together. Um, also an adaptation. I think a lot of technology is probably arguably further behind when it comes to adaptation technology and that will require that investment to get it scaled up. You know, are there new ways of, um, I'm just thinking, Farming that can create seeds that are more drought tolerant, for example, that require less water, for example. And I'm not talking about GMO. I'm just saying, are there ways of creating and, you know, breeding new plants that can actually help you adapt to the impacts of climate change? That requires money to be put in, to the seed production to be scaled up for those seeds to reach the farmers who need them the most. 
and then for it to be trialed. That also requires innovation and finance and investment. And the returns on that may not happen immediately, but it will happen in the next five, 10 years time when, when these technologies need to be scaled up. I, I think it's fascinating. But in terms of adaptation, what, what could be other examples? Well, the whole area around nature-based adaptation solutions, I think Her Excellency called nature-based solutions another technology. Now you could argue it's not a technology in the great grander scheme, but I think it's a clever use of words because you could look at it as an investment in a solution that will give you returns. Because, you know, whether it's investing in recreating mangroves in an area or protecting an existing area, you could create income from that and, and benefits. You know, it's going to sequester carbon. It will help protect communities who live up you know, further inland from that, from storm, storm surges, for example, because they're a good adaptation. Um, they reduce the height of the waves, for example. They can help generate more, more um, fish stocks for your fisheries, and that creates income for fishermen. Um, you can generate ecotourism. You know, you can create new businesses that can help drive mangrove tours, for example, like we see here. So scaling that up also brings benefits, and investors can see that. And there's cases out there now there's no longer we can't hide behind to say can you prove that case it mm -hmm. exists yes it does exist it just requires a bit of research and putting it together for an investor so they can see it yeah yeah so there's those are examples as well um you know i'm originally from bangladesh yeah and um and you know that country is used to dealing with sea level rise it has been the scale at which it will face in the future is what it needs support for but um you know my um, my dad was from a farming community and every year when the monsoons hit, they would lose their crops or the, the land. They'd have to get on boats to go elsewhere and they would adapt for that, that period by having floating farms. They would actually have kind of rice crops still growing on like a raft and they would go from community to community. This was in like the 1950s they were doing this. So that know-how exists, I'm saying. and um, It's true. And actually, yeah, yeah. this is a very good point of maybe we don't need to reinvent uh, anything or invent anything. We just maybe need to look at how things were done in the past, looking at our heritage, especially in sectors such as agriculture. There was yeah. already a lot of adaptation in the past. Yeah, exactly. So there's solutions like that, which are there in, you know, kind of floating farms, for example. Incredible. It's never going to compensate for losing a massive area of farmland that was producing so many different crops, but it gives you a bit of resilience. You know, and until the floods die down and then you can repopulate that area again with your crops when it comes to planting season again. So there's there's a lot of knowledge knowledge like that that's um, you know, local indigenous knowledge that can be tapped to help us adapt to the impacts of climate change. When we come back, we talk about how the UAE can continue to play a leadership role and is setting the stage for climate resilience and adaptation. I wanted to take a minute and tell you about our partners, MasterCard, who helped make this podcast possible. Did you know that from the 1st of January 2028, all newly produced MasterCard plastic cards will be made from more sustainable materials? Many banks today are already offering sustainable MasterCard products, so you too can become a part of the movement by asking your bank for a sustainable card today. Thank you to MasterCard for their support of Forward Talks and Goombook. Welcome back to my conversation with this episode's climate leader, Tanzid Alam. 
it would be really interesting to see all these funding and all all this finance having a role, playing a role in investing in greener ventures, not so established, because it's easier to invest in, you know, solar. We know it. We know we know how to scale it. But right now, I think we need new solutions and innovations. And who's going to fund that? Definitely, we do. And uh, you're kind of raising out that opportunity of innovation and new startups, SME communities, and maybe the UAE could be at the hub of that. You know, they've been supporting the growth of SMEs through innovation grants and accelerators, all sorts, you know, hackathons, all sorts of stuff going on in the UAE for a long time on this. Um, I think on when it comes to climate, um, you could look at adaptation as an area, potentially that the UAE could... Um, really show a lot of um, leadership in. I'm thinking around cooling mm. as well. You know, we're going, the whole world is not going to get any cooler. You know, 2023, we almost breached the 1.5 degree average increase mark. You could say some of that was because it was an El Nino year, but the trend is pretty clear that we're on track to go beyond one and a half degrees of warming. Um, cooling obviously is a massive consumer of electricity. Um, there's whole areas of innovation through local knowledge, historical knowledge around creating passive design for communities. You know, having, you know, if you go down to the Bastakir area of um, Dubai, you know, the old style housing with the narrow corridors, the wind towers, the shading, having trees and, you know, having urban kind of green spaces to provide that kind of shading for people to cool off. Um, having, you know, the right orientation houses. I mean, you're you're an architect, your background, you know this stuff better than me, but some of that has been lost as part of the race to develop massive cities. I'm not just talking about the UAE, I'm talking beyond. There's a lot of learning here that could be kind of leveraged and, and lent on. You know, they've, they've, we've also, like in the UAE, we're a leader in district cooling. There's two massive companies here. It takes way less energy to produce district cooling than from more conventional sources of cooling, like the window units that you see. Um, moving away from refrigerants that are um, greenhouse gases, because, you know, when you, if you have any work done on your house here, you know, people come in with these canisters to actually recharge that. Those are HCFCs. These are like 6,000 times the greenhouse gas warming potential of one molecule of CO2. Any leakage of that, you know, if you imagine air conditioning being scaled up, that's going to lead to increase in our emissions. And warming so we could move away from using those gases um and and this is one of the things around the montreal protocol that was agreed in kigali in 2016 that sends the signal that we need to move away from more um move away from using greenhouse gases as a source of our for, for the gas for our cooling systems and refrigeration so there's innovation around that and the UAE championed this kind of global cooling pledge at cop 28 as well you know dr sultan and others were involved there so that, you know, can it create a new um, type of cooling businesses and innovation funding towards that that can help create startups that innovate? And, you know, can you create industrial sectors in free zones that you, you get like re reduced trade license fees and money to help you experiment in the right labs and the facilities being provided to trial this kind of new technology here? Um, I think there's a lot of potential like that, and it would be good to see how that can be made more tangible. You know, is that a role that Altera can provide to yeah. grow homegrown UAE businesses to help tackle some of these challenges that can then export to other parts of the world? 
uh, you know, the UAE is very proud of this whole made in the Emirates brand, yes. you know, can we do that made in the Emirates, but, you know, with the for climate solutions part of it as well. Absolutely. Yeah. I think the UAE and the region can definitely play this role. I remember years ago um, with the former um, Minister of Climate Change, Dr. Althani, they asked him the question saying, um, "What? Are, where are we at in terms of climate action for the UAE? And, and he said, listen, we've been building roads and infrastructure in, in, in incredible conditions when other cities around the world at the moment, when they reach 37 degrees, the red light, the post melts in the middle and people walk and they leave a footprint in the on the sidewalk. Uh, here, you can walk outside in the summer and, and the infrastructure is still standing perfectly. So there is a know-how and now it needs to, this know-how needs to be redirected to transform all this into a more sustainable way, but teaching also the world what it means to, to live in a warmer environment. But let's put it in a shorter um, term. Let's see next year. What, what can we expect, of course, from the UAE, but also worldwide, leading to COP29 in Azerbaijan? Because still the UAE will play a role for another year by supporting the presidency of COP29. What do you think and what do we need? Well, I mean, COP28 left some gaps that need to still be filled. And I think one of those gaps is this newly quantified goal on finance. There's a lot of, I mean, the UAE has good links with Azerbaijan, diplomatic connections and so on. So hopefully it'll work. And they're both oil and gas producing countries. Azerbaijan is also already facing a lot of criticism, um, similar on similar grounds to how the UAE faced when they, it was first announced as the COP kind of um, host for COP28. So maybe there's some kind of lessons learned that they can help Azerbaijan deal with that. I think we were lucky that the COP presidency was so open to actually addressing those challenges head on. And, you know, ultimately the UAE pulled it out the bag at the end. Yes. Yeah. So they, they were smart how they positioned and negotiated the COP at the very beginning with that loss and damage announcement, created a lot of positive momentum to deal with the hard stuff yeah. later on, the energy transition text and so on. You know, the UAE used a lot of its diplomatic um, power with Saudi Arabia, I know in particular, because Saudi was objecting to that transition text and, and so on. But it obviously they have good relations and use that to their to their best effect. So there's a lot of behind the scenes diplomacy going on. Can Azerbaijan do that? Um, what help do they need from the UAE? Can there be some, I'm sure some of those things need to get figured out and will be in the next year. Um, the other area which was left quite woefully behind was this whole Article 6 of the Paris Agreement and the role of carbon markets. Now, um, there's a lot of, uh, you might have seen already in the UAE and elsewhere, there's a lot of talk about carbon markets, carbon credits, voluntary markets. You know, it's, it's a big area and I'm no expert in this. There's a lot of people who are experts in this. But to be honest, I've seen a lot of cowboys emerging in the market using offsets as a reason to greenwash their brand. Yeah. And even companies who are just offering offset as the first step to net zero, and that's not what net zero should be. You have no. to do everything you can to reduce your emissions and offset the residual only, and you need high quality carbon credits. So there's a lot of murkiness in this market, in this region and in the UAE, I'd say as well, which needs to be clarified quite urgently. And I think the discussions around Article 6 in Azerbaijan need to give that signal if it can fill that gap because it's been lagging behind since Paris 
you know, the Kyoto Protocol's over. There's no clean development mechanism anymore. Lots of good projects are waiting for an official mechanism through which they can get accredited. The voluntary carbon market doesn't have really doesn't yet have a a recognised standard. Um, it may be coming, but you know, this is the um, there's a there's a task force on scaling voluntary carbon markets, which is creating standards. Um, I don't know if it's going to release it this year or not, but that could help. But we still need that Article 6 issue to be resolved in, okay. in COP29. The other thing would be good to see is if countries who are early kind of leaders on climate can actually come up already with updated nationally determined contributions that include elements from the global stock take and already submit those before COP29 in Azerbaijan, because I think that will help move that needle towards you know, to two degrees or below two degrees. Um, is anyone doing that? I mean, Do you Brazil think that's possible? Yeah, well, I mean, it depends on Brazil, actually. Some of this, because Brazil will be the host of COP30, and a huge part of that kind of short-term challenge is to do with reducing the rate of deforestation in tropical rainforests. So Brazil and African countries, you know, like Congo, um, uh, they have a lot of carbon in their tropical rainforests. So being able to... Provide them with the money to not chop those forests down and to make sure it reaches the local indigenous communities is crucial. So Brazil and the UAE signed this kind of COP to COP nature partnership as well, with Her Excellency Razan involved in that. And they created a financing facility to stop countries from deforesting. And this is something that's been happening in advance of the um, the biodiversity COP as well that was agreed in, in, in Montreal and Kunming in China. And um, so mobilizing that this year would be interesting to see how that can actually see money flowing to the countries that need it to help them stop deforesting. That can help be practical actions that can reduce our actual our emissions from other sources beyond energy. Now, there was some saying last year, I think the IEA and others, that emissions from fossil fuels may have peaked last year. We mm -hmm. have to see if that actually is the case or not this year. Um, but I, I think those are some areas that will require the money to start flowing. Um, I'd love to see someone tracking the announcements yeah. that were made at COP to see which of those are actually get operationalized this year as well. Shouldn't that be the role of COP? team to maybe do that tracking? I'd hope so, yeah. Or maybe it requires someone independent, like Goombook, for example, to do it. No way. <laughs> I wish we had that capacity, but I would never dare <laughs> to go that way. Um, but I'm sure within the UN or within, you know, some specific, I mean, COP28 itself could maybe have a spin-off team that tracks. Yeah, I know some of the things they're following up on already. You know, for example, this agriculture partnership, the funding that they announced on the agriculture to FCON, how much it was, but they're already looking at kind of operationalizing it. Um, I think some of the climate health kind of areas that they announced as well, I think that's beginning to get obviously a lot of traction already. So it's also about transparency and saying if that money is actually beginning to flow mm. and that reporting of that is really important. Yeah. So it's not just an announcement, but there's some accountability behind that as well. Um, some of this will just require practically just teams to be created, secretariats for funds like Altera will probably need to hire a team to help operationalize it to create a strategy for what it's going to do. 
who's going to fund, who it's going to fund, how much of it will be global, how much of it will be UAE, regional. All of those dis discussions, decisions need to be made. Maybe they're already happening behind closed doors, but that also needs to then be communicated so we know what's happening next. So, um, so yeah, the, there's a lot of hard work that lies ahead to make it happen. Thank you for joining me today. We'll have a short bonus episode with Tanzid out next week on his experience with youth at COP28 and some of our thoughts on how to help channel the next generation through education and awareness. Forward Talks is brought to you by Goombook in partnership with MasterCard. I'm Tatiana Antonelia Beya, and this episode was produced by Anurada Patarcharya, Samantha K. Ruse, and Chirag Disay. See you next week. Thank you.